The mind is not just an organ that sits in your head. We often equate it to the brain, but the mind is what we use to make sense out of a situation. It is that guiding principle, the concept of how we take in information from our environment or from our internal being and make sense of it. So if we use that broader definition of what mind is, mental health really becomes this concept of a state of being as we're taking an awareness of our surroundings externally and internally. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. Welcome to our fourth Stigma is Curable. Today's episode is about, I mean, today's forum, not episode. I'm used to doing the podcast. Uh, Today's forum is about anxiety and really talking about the stigmas and the myths and the not really understanding what anxiety is. So I had a whole presentation planned. We were going to uh, share it. You were going to see slides. You were going to see um, everything. Uh, Unfortunately, we were having technical problems. So I'm just going to wing it, which is fine because I tend to wing it anyways uh, when I'm uh, meeting with clients or if we're on a podcast. So bear with us. If you have any questions, if you're on the Zoom, you can send them in a chat. If you want to come on the Zoom, feel free to go to the event page. There's the link for the Zoom there. Or if you're on Facebook Live, I see a couple of people are on Facebook Live now. Uh, feel free to say hi, thumbs up, or send any questions if, if you have any questions as they come up. Um, quick introduction. My name is Steve Opolinik. I am the president of the Promethean Project, and we are launching this initiative, Stigma is Curable, to really combat stigmas that exist in physical, mental, health, and wellness spaces. So we've done things on ADHD and trauma in Black and Brown communities. We've had uh, a presentation on addiction. And so this month is anxiety. And we were fortunate enough to to get um, some grants to do this through Belchertown Community Council and through Massachusetts uh, Community Council. So we're really excited to have those to to bring this to you and then to offer new ones every month. Um, A little bit about myself. I'll be your presenter tonight. Um, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. I'm also a certified mental health integrative medicine practitioner, which is just the fancy title to say um, I can look at diet and nutrition and supplements to to help with mental health needs and wellness needs and how it's all um, interrelated. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, I'm an avid dad joke lover. Um, It it goes back generations in my family. Huge comic book nerd, as you can tell from the Captain America shield behind me. And then also there's something I like to do when I, I do introductions and it's this and. I'm all those things and I'm someone who's suffered from anxiety. I'm someone who's suffered from depression and trauma. I'm someone who's suffered from emotional overeating. And I tell you all these things because I think it's really important when we talk about anxiety to realize that there are a lot of people out there who deal with anxiety uh, way more than we suspect. Most of the time, often we feel alone or isolated if we're feeling depressed or anxious or um you know, unheard. And so as we talk about anxiety today, and I'm hoping we can have a really good discourse on this, um, I think it's important to own up about our own experiences 
uh, myself included, so that you know that my perspective is not just professionally, but also as someone who has gone through the dregs of um, dealing with anxiety and dealing with depression and things of those nature. So uh, again, uh, I think when we start, it's really important to understand what we're talking about uh, definition-wise. So I want to talk a little bit about definitions of mental health and then talk a little bit about the definition of anxiety and then get into how that relates to what we're talking about and then offer some tips, um, things to build resilience, things that you can do to work on your own distress tolerance and some practices that you might be able to put into place to help manage and honor your anxiety specifically, but it also works for other emotions. So uh, a really good working definition of mental health is not necessarily what you find in a textbook. It's not necessarily what you find from APA guides or, or any psych guides that you could go out and type into a, a Google search to tell you. But I think when it, it's more important to break down the idea of what mental health is into individual components. So health in general is the state of being um, that someone's in. So there's poor health, there's good health, there's physical health, there's mental health. Um, it, it's really based on a state of being. And then mental generally just refers to the mind, right? And so obviously it's the state of being using your mind. Now we can go a little bit further and I think bear with me a little bit. I think it will make a lot more sense when I get to the connecting piece and realize that the mind is not just an organ that sits in your head. We often equate it to the brain, but the mind is, is what we use to make sense out of a situation, right? It is that guiding principle, uh, the concept of how we take in information from our environment or from our internal being and make sense of it. So if we use that broader definition of what mind is, mental health really becomes this concept of, you know, a state of being as we're taking an awareness of our surroundings externally and internally. So it's not just our brain. There are many different minds that we use for that. And so some of the guiding principles we, we use at the Promethean Project are the cerebral mind, which is, we often equate to the brain, we also talk about fascial mind, which is the connective tissue in our body that holds our muscles together and our organs together and keeps them in place. That's called fascia. And we have seen a lot of studies that it's related to stuck trauma, right? So stuck energy that happens in the body. So the fascial mind is really important as well, right? Digestive mind is how we make sense of the food we eat and how that affects the rest of our body. And then you have the heart mind, which is really, really important because we often think that the heart just is circulatory system and it just pushes things through. But I think it's really important to also realize that the heart has its own neurons and it communicates with our gut and it communicates with our, our brain. And so all these minds are working within your body as one, and we make sense through all of these minds. So if we just look at the cerebral mind for mental health, and anxiety specifically for today. We're missing all these other cues that can increase or decrease our emotions, uh, the intensity of our emotions and process through. So keep that in mind as we go through, pun intended. Um, today, and my sister just made a face that she was not happy about that dad joke. As we go through today and talk about how we regulate anxiety and how we honor anxiety as an emotion, because it's not just up here, it's also with our heart, our digestive system, our fascial system. Oh, and the fifth mind I forgot, which is our nervous system, right? Our nervous system is integral into all these things because it responds to cues in the environment and tells our body how to react. So all, all of this is just messages that go through our body and our different minds. So keep that um, at the forefront as we talk. So uh, we're, we're 18 minutes in, even though we started probably 10 minutes late and we haven't got to an anxiety yet. So here we go. Uh, I'm a little long winded as much as my family will tell you. So I'm going to jump right into it. Anxiety. If you look at the definition of anxiety, it's an emotion that is tied to reaction, right? It, it's something that's tied to our fight or flight reaction in our nervous system. Uh, the nervous system mind of parasympathetic and sympathetic. And then if we want to get more specific ventral 
vagal and dorsal vagal response of the vagus nerve. Um, and so it's taking input in, reacting to keep safe, right? And a lot of times there's this physicality to it, which will increase your heart rate or your breath or your blood pressure or the energy in your body. That's often the, the description of anxiety as, as we go through mental health standards. However, we can break it down into a smaller component. And really, if we were to get to the most simplistic version of what anxiety is, is it's a message, right? It's a message between our minds to tell our body something is going on, right? And so we often equate this to this idea of pain, right? And bear with me. Uh, pain is something that we endure in our body, right? But what is the message about pain? It, it's not something that we're excited about. We try to avoid pain. We try to do things that don't cause us pain. But when pain happens, it's a message to our body and to our minds to react in a certain way. If I stub my toe, my body is telling me, hey, pay attention. Don't do that again. And if I'm listening to the message, I'm going to walk differently. I'm going to pay attention to what's around me. I'm going to make sure I don't step out of that Lego. I'm going to be really aware of that, right? And so emotions are very much the same thing. Anxiety is a message between our minds that is trying to tell us something is going on. So the real question about today is, are we listening to that message? Are we honoring that message? And is that message happening at the right time for us to, to have that focus and attention? And so we're going to get into that a little bit more. But so anyways, as we talk about this integrative model of mental health and anxiety, it's really important to understand that the nervous system mind is really important for that reactiveness. I mentioned fight or flight. I'm sure you've heard that. It's a huge buzz phrase in, in psych psychology, but also just in health and wellness. And the reality is that's sympathetic nervous system. So if we look at central nervous system based things, there's parasympathetic and uh, there's autonomic nervous system, which is parasympathetic and sympathetic, which is just really rest and relaxation and, uh, you know, stimulation. So anxiety and anger and frustration are all the sympathetic you know, fight or flight responses. And then you have things like calmness and rest, which is parasympathetic rest and relaxation. And then parasympathetic is broken in half and really it's uh, ventral, which is rest and relaxation, calmness, and then dorsal, which is more like freezing or depression. And so it's a ladder. So we have calmness, we have anxiety, anger, frustration, which is sympathetic. And then the bottom tier is depression. And it's really important that we pay attention to this is because anxiety kind of lives in that sympathetic system. And we want to regulate through calmness and anxiety but usually what happens when we talk about anxiety disorders is we're regulating through anger, anxiety, depression, and then back up and we get kind of stuck in the lower tier. So we want to do uh, things that raise us up or move us up the ladder towards calmness and connection. Unfortunately, we can't always stay there. That'd be awesome if we could stay there all the time, but you know, we're animals, we live in an environment where there is danger. So it's really important. So when we talk about that message about anxiety, it's really important for our safety, right? If we go back millennia, we look at that reaction as a safety measure to stay away from saber-toothed tigers or to stay away from cave bears or cave lions, right? Or even nowadays to stay away from bears that are feeding on the bird feeder in our yard, right? We have that anxious response and, and the message is clear don't do that. Or if you can't stay away from it, you have to fight. And if both those things don't work, you play dead, right? Those are, are the, those tears. So we want to try to honor those messages by saying, okay, I'm anxious right now. What, what is that telling me about what's going on? Right? Because if we just constantly avoid the things that makes, make us anxious, and now they're completely different, right? We're not facing saber-toothed tigers all the time, but things that make us anxious now are work or relationships or tough conversations or rent or money or finances. All these things have taken the place of those environmental dangers 
and they all are relative, but we are having that fight or flight response in those moments. And so there's a bridge between anxiety and anger, which is frustration, right? Anxiety is run away or avoid. Anger is fight, yell, argue. Frustration bridges those two things because if you're highly anxious going through the course of the day, unfortunately, and I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, we tend to take it out on the people we love. Even if they just ask us a simple question, even if they make a simple statement, you know, that's an environment that we feel safe in. And so that frustration kind of breeds over into anger. And so oftentimes we get this, this weird avoidance when we're, we're anxious, but this we- weird fury towards the people we love, right? So that's important to pay attention to too. So all these things are these building blocks towards what anxiety is and it, it manifests in people differently. So we've talked about environmental stresses that, that cause anxiety, but there's also genetic stresses. We're evolved enough that in our DNA, uh, high periods of stress and anxiety affect the alleles on our DNA and it can actually what, do what we call pruning. And that message gets passed down to the next generation in our family. And so over time, and no one's to blame to this, this is just how survival happens in our world. Over time, if someone goes through something traumatic or highly intense anxiety or stress, the DNA is going to get passed down through generations. And then you can have a situation where you might not know why you're anxious, but you have this anxiety low-level anxiety that's kind of guiding you through day-to-day processes. And if you really look at the mechanics of how the minds and the body work, it's for safety reasons, right? So let, let's say I'm dealing with a saber-toothed tiger and I constantly have to make sure that saber-toothed tiger is not taking my kids when I'm not looking, right? My anxiety is going to save my family. And so it's going to pass down to my offspring as like, oh, we live in this area where there's a ton of danger and saber tooth tigers. We need to be ready for that attack when it comes. And so again, a biological trait that, that's really based on safety is now perpetuating this feeling of uh, avoidance or feeling of always being present or always being on and making sure that you're aware which will keep you safe, but it will burn you out, right? No one can be on that level all the time. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of generational trauma that's being passed down uh, between families in our society. We, we're seeing this, this always being vigilant uh, for danger uh, for, for some specific real safety reasons. And then also for these common things that come up in our day, like finances or school or social interactions and things of these nature. So it's really important to pay attention to that. So the environmental stuff, right? Is there danger around you? Are you living in a abusive household? Are you in an abusive relationship? Are you in a place that's high in crime? Is there danger? Is there violence, right? The genetic, and then the third uh, important thing is, is brain chemistry right? Because our body has evolved. And so sometimes brain chemistry can kind of be thrown off by, um, you know, neurotransmitters like GABA depletions or serotonin depletions or norepinephrine uh, increase. All those things relate to anxiety. And we're not, we've already gone really scientific with with the nervous system and and things of that. So we're not going to get into to the brain and the neurotransmitters today. But I, I want you to pay attention to those three things because I think it's really important that we know that anxiety exists through the minds, but also because of these precipitating things that stimulate uh, the anxious response in our body, right? So that's anxiety. I know I said it's a simple definition. Obviously it's, it's much more than that, but I think if I was to boil it down to the work I do and the interactions I have and what I've gone through with my own anxiety and trauma, it becomes about what is the message that the anxiety is telling us and how do we honor it? And so when I say honor, it's not avoid it. It's not get sucked into Netflix. It's not get sucked into a video game. It's not treat anxious symptoms by not going out or um, by overeating, which is what I did, or even other addictive qualities, 
you know, shopping, sex, exercise, all, all of these things are addictive qualities that uh, can be a band-aid on anxiety. And they can be, they can help in moments like exercise is fantastic for anxiety because remember, it stimulates the heart brain, it stimulates the nervous system brain, and it gives you all this energy. So exercise is fantastic to regulate that. But it can be a burden if you do it in place of actually honoring um, the emotion. So what do I mean by that? Well, if I had my slides, you'd see this cool grid about what the difference is between honoring emotion and avoiding emotion. But basically, it's saying, okay, I'm taking a step. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on what that message is, why that's happening, right? What's it telling me? I'm taking a second to sit with that emotion because if you don't sit with an emotion, if you don't become aware of what that emotion is or what that message is, there, there's no way to honor it. So you actually have to develop distress tolerance to sit with that emotion and say, okay, what's avoiding this and how, what's actually doing something generative for this, right? So if I use my own experience, um, my own emotional overeating was caused by anxiety. If it was a test, if it was social interactions, if it was distress with a friendship group or, or things of that nature. And instead of actually listening to what that emotional response is, which was, hey, these things are really important to you. It's really important that there's resolution. You need to be assertive. You need to speak up about these things that are happening. Or, you know, even with tests or quizzes, uh, you should actually probably study instead of putting it off to the night before, right? That was a lesson. It took me a really long time to learn because I felt like I thrived in that moment. And some people do, but it cost me way too much distress. And so honoring that, I, sitting with that would be, okay, instead of eating, which I know feels good and makes me feel good, but also makes me feel terrible later. What can I do to listen to that message and be proactive, right? So the examples would be being assertive and standing up for what I believe in that relationship uh, or preparing for that test or that quiz or that paper, or you know, even putting a slide deck together for a presentation that apparently is not gonna get used, right? So, uh, you know, these things kind of come up, but it's about taking that breath, sitting in that moment, building awareness, and then asking, what can I do that's generative, right? And so that's what we're talking about honoring. So there's a couple, couple of tricks I've learned along the ways that, that can be helpful for that. And so really it's looking at building resilience. And there's a couple of key components to that. And we're going to talk a little bit about it, but uh, emotional regulation is key really paying attention to that emotion, honoring it, but also saying, okay, I know that I have to manage this, but in this moment, I know I'm out of sorts. So how can I regulate this emotion, right? What can I do that can be helpful in this moment to bring me back to maybe a baseline or maybe a lower level of, of this response if I can't do something uh, that directly affects that emotion? So you can see this in you know, if, if people are anxious and they can't do anything about the test tomorrow, they can regulate their emotions by spending time with friends, right? They've studied all they can. They can't do more um, using coping skills like uh, listening to music or reading a book or coloring. Those things help regulate emotionally. I bet you there's some people on here who have uh, fur babies at home, either cats, dogs, bunny rabbits, whatever. Um, those animals, specifically dogs, uh, mostly, and horses, uh, are animals that can really help you co-regulate, which just means, okay, instead of me just being the only one working on my emotional regulation through coping skills, which is strong, a strength and recommended, I can utilize either my loved ones to help me co-regulate by spending time together or doing something together, or these pets that I have by sitting with and being with and playing with, right? The beautiful thing about dogs is they don't necessarily talk back, right? They have their own kind of communication styles. I saw the look on my sister's face. I was like, well, I don't know about that. Um, but they can sense when things, when, when there's distress. And that's why we see a lot of in tuned relationships with 
um, dogs and cats and, and horses where that animal responds and can help co-regulate. And an interesting tidbit, you can look this up on YouTube. I'm not sure exactly what the, the title is. They did a study where they had people who had anxiety disorders who were really uh, close with their animals and they separated them for a period of time and they interviewed it, uh, the, the humans. And you could see the heart rate raise because of the anxious response in the humans. And you could also see they had monitors. You could see the dog's heart rate also raise when they were separated. Then they did something that was really amazing and they allowed them to come back mid interview. And as soon as that dog jumped on that person's lap, you saw, saw, you saw <laughs> the heart rates sink, not just drop. They, they were so in tuned that they were almost the same pattern, right? Obviously a little bit different, um, but they got to a point where they were able to co-regulate. So emotional reg regulation is key for resilience building, but also honoring emotions. Uh, a second step is impulse control, right? So if we look at this pandemic, um, if we remember the early months, there was a huge shortage on what? Toilet paper. I obviously am not in front of an audience, so people can't yell that out. So uh, toilet paper, impulse control, concerns because people were worried that they would run out of uh, bottled water or toilet paper because of the de demand was so high because people weren't leaving their houses, right? Now, luckily we got through that toilet paper shortage and we came out the other side, but in times of stress and distress, impulse control is all over the place, right? So an important way to build distress tolerance or resilience is to work on impulse control, which is easier said than done. And I think one of the best ways to really think about it, like we were talking about emotions and anxiety and sitting with it, is really sitting with that moment. And before you make a decision, imagine a stop sign or a stoplight flashing right in front of you, cueing you to take a breath, and then actually taking a breath, thinking through the situation, and then deciding based on the outcomes of what's going on in front of you. Hi, Linky. Um, sorry, my nephew just popped on the screen. And so this is really important. It, it seems simple and it is simple, but it's not easy. It's really developing the practice of slowing down, physically taking a breath, a pause, thinking about options, what's generative, what's limiting, and then making a decision. Right. Self-esteem is, is the third thing in distress uh, tolerance and resilience building. And so that's really highlighting your strengths. You utilizing a strength inventory to really take a step back and say, what are positive uh, strengths that I have uh, personality-wise or skills that I have? And let me make a list of those things and let me try to use them daily. And at the end of the day, checking in and seeing if you did use those strengths, right? Because it, it will be helpful for you to look on the day and say, oh, you know, maybe I was anxious all day. Maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was because I was able to help others. I was able to pay attention to the needs of my family and provide for my family. I was able to make someone laugh, right? Um, so when you're dealing with anxiety, these things are super important to, to help you build resilience. Now, Usually when we talk about resilience building, I'm going to cut it short, but there, there are other options that you can kind of look in things like a beginner's mind, keeping an open mind, empathy building, which is super important, really understanding where other people are coming from. This helps with co-regulation, feeling that, that person's emotion and really connecting with them. Um, mindfulness, asking for help, right? Those are just a couple of the other ones, but I really wanted to focus on um, the beginning stages of emotional regulation, impulse control, and beginner's mind to, to really pay attention to it. Um, one of the, the buzzwords I want to focus on too is uh, mindfulness and this practice of mindfulness. And I think it's really important to cultivate a practice, whether it's meditation or just coloring or walking in nature, forest bathing, hiking, 
um, doing the dishes, right? You can do all these things mindfully, but not every action you do is mindfulness because it's about cultivating the discipline to stay in this moment. Stay focused on what's going on here and now on purpose and without judgment. And this is really important for anxiety because if you look at it, the emotion of anxiety often pushes us forward towards the future or to the past, something we're anxious about that is coming up soon related to our past. And mindfulness is all about the discipline of staying in this moment. So if we can work on cultivating that, and I'm sure there'll be some questions about about this in the feed. Well, I hope there would be because I love talking about mindfulness. If we can cultivate this through practices, we can emotionally regulate where we're at. We can honor our anxiety, our emotions, and then make generative decisions to move forward. Um, so I'm going to cut my long-winded diatribe about anxiety off in a minute because I want to get to question and answers because this is why we're doing this. We want people to interact. We want to have this open dialogue. Um, but I want to leave you with one last thing. And if any of my clients are listening, they're going to be like, oh, he says this all the time. I'm so sick of hearing it. But stay away from positive and negative, right? These two things often paint our emotions as positive or negative, right? If we, if we are just on this metric of those two things, then anxiety is a negative uh, quality. Anger is a negative quality. Sadness is a negative quality. Calmness and connection, and happiness are all positive. But it's not that, that black and white. There's some grayness there. So, and there's, truth be told, there is something called toxic positivity where it's that fake it until you make it mentality where they say, you know, just slap a smile on your face. It's going to be okay. You'll get through this, which is nice to hear, but also not validating for that emotion you're dealing with in that moment, right? So if you leave here, uh, this conversation about anxiety with anything, think about generative decisions, generative outcomes, things that are generative, right? Instead of positive and things that are limiting instead of negative, because it, it will really focus on that moment and that environment and let you see different outcomes, right? Because generative outcomes aren't always rainbows and butterflies and smiles. Sometimes it's just the best you can do in that moment. And if we look for a positive outcome all the time, we're going to miss the opportunity to move ourselves forward. So uh, there you go. That's my conversation on anxiety. I want to open it up to the Zoom and to the Facebook Live audience, if they have any questions, uh, Caitlin, my sister, is going to be uh, reading them out, and I'll do my best to answer them so that way um, your questions and comments can all be heard, and maybe there'll be an answer to in, in my rambling. All right, so we have a question um, that popped up on the Facebook Live from... My husband, actually. <laughs> hey, Nick. He says, he says, does anxiety always have a cause? What if you feel anxious but can't identify a cause? Right. So I think you, it was a good question because I think this happens a lot, especially as a parent, right? If you're dealing with someone or family member or kid and they seem anxious or worried and you ask them, Hey, what's going on? What's making you anxious? What's making you worried? And they say, I don't know. I don't know. And as a therapist, I can attest. That's the answer I get most of the time from people. I don't know. But so this is a good question because it challenges that. I, I believe that there is always a cause, right? It just may not be clear as to what that cause is. If we're looking again, if we look at the integrative model of uh, the minds, if we look at environment, uh, genetics, and you know, brain chemistry, there are these causes that happen in all of those that we're not super aware of, right? So very quickly, if we look at digestive health, we can eat or consume something that can make us anxious and we may not even know it, right? And not just allergies. Obviously, if, you're, if you have an, uh, a food allergy and you consume something, it's going to rev up your anxiety because your body starts to attack itself. Um, but there are foods that can really put your 
digestive mind uh, in distress and that can affect the rest of your body, right? So uh, if you eat too much, if you don't eat enough, if you drink alcohol, I know, and I know that's a tricky one because most people will say alcohol will help with anxiety and, and it will when you have the first couple uh, drinks, but then it's counterintuitive, right? Because it tricks the minds in your body and they don't become aware of what's going on. It affects sleep, right? It, it's a toxin, so it's a strain on your digestive health, right? And then you start to become reliant on it to manage, or you know, it can actually make you more impulsive. And we know impulse control is a good way to build resilience when dealing with anxiety or trauma or things of this nature. So I would say there is always a cause. It just may not be obvious. And I think you have to do a little introspection, awareness building and sitting with that emotion to try to figure it out or seeing providers who can help you do that. Right. Because brain chemistry, uh, you know, we don't have a gauge like a printer in our brain and like, Oh, you're low on serotonin do something to, to, to produce more serotonin. So you might have to go to a provider, a counselor, a doctor, um, to get some, some understanding on that. Good question, though. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. All right. We have another question from Kevin. Kevin, did you want to ask it or would you like me to read it? <laughs> and that's my son. <laughs> um, so he says, as a practicing clinician, how do you feel about self-diagnosis? Many people, especially kids and teens, might use the word anxiety before receiving a medical diagnosis as a way to describe their feeling. But others believe that it's irresponsible to use the word so loosely or that people are just doing it for attention. Fair question, Kevin. Uh, well thought question. I, I think that's a, a great one. Uh, Self-diagnosis is hard because we're talking about building awareness. We're talking about sitting with turning towards self and, and really paying attention to it. So I think there's room to do a fair amount of research on, on what might be going on for you. I, I don't necessarily want to condone self-diagnosing saying I have an anxiety disorder or I have this, or I have agoraphobia or things of that nature, because I think there are very specific metrics that need to be met to get those diagnoses. But I think if you can do some introspection, if you can sit with, like we're talking about, really pay attention, I think you can start to pay attention to, oh, I feel like I'm having a lot of anxiety or whatever it is you call it, and this might be related, right? So the good part about it is you're, you're paying attention, you're looking into it, you're doing some research on, on how things manifest, but I think if I think there's an important part with certain diagnoses that you actually have to go to a professional to really pay attention because there's so much that goes into these diagnoses that people don't know. And I think one of the things, Kevin, that, that you're hitting on is using terms like, oh, that's my bipolar, or I'm so bipolar, or uh, that's my OCD, right? When you throw around terms like this, one is not valuing your actual experience unless you actually have these diagnoses. And two, it's undermining other people's experiences because it, it really brings misunderstanding to light on what's going on for people with those diagnoses. So uh, quick summation, Kevin, is yes, be introspective. Yes, look into some things. Yes, sit with. Don't diagnose yourself, but pursue things that could help once you start noticing if maybe uh you know, you have a lot of anxiety, or if you're starting to be concerned, it's getting to a point of agoraphobia or uh, OCD, or if your mood is dysregulated, I think that's important to go see a professional to, to really understand what it is. Because I'll tell you just right off the bat, ADHD and anxiety have a lot of components that are similar because of how they affect the nervous system and focus and attention. And if you don't actually understand what the driving force is, you might miss some uh, good coping skills or resilience building options that could help you get through that process. You're welcome, Kevin. Thank you. So I have a question. Okay. Um, so I 
I liked how you started it off when you were talking about um, awareness of our surroundings. And as you said that, I was becoming anxious because I'm sitting here. My two-year-old is running around playing. My husband's doing the dishes, which thank you. Um, but yes, there's Nick. dishes clanging. I could hardly hear you. The dogs were barking. And so I'm sitting here listening to you and just all my emotions are going crazy. I'm trying to keep calm. But my specific question is as a mom and having stress and really not having enough time right. for, I mean, I shouldn't say that because there are ways to make time, mm. but I find myself going to the bathroom longer just to get a little break. And so <laughs> I'm just wondering um, what you would recommend for starting mindfulness in that respect when you know things, well, you know what needs to change, but how do you make that happen? So where do you go from there? Yeah, um, so there, there are levels to your question. So first I wanna thank you for being open about your own anxious experience with just being on today because <laughs> you know at the height of this my anxiety was peak too because I couldn't get any of the slides to work or or even the Facebook live which is why we were a little bit late but um I think there are a couple things I, I'll get to the mindfulness part but I think in that moment you're with the dogs barking and, and your son running around and the dishes clanging, it's really easy to get lost in the turmoil of what's happening and start catastrophizing, right? Catastrophizing is just this term that we talk about where instead of being based in reality of, of like, okay, this is happening, we go to worst case scenario, right? And we start to have an anxious response about that worst case scenario. Oh, they're going to hear the dogs. They're going to hear the the dishes they're going to hear my son my son's going to come on and it's going to not look professional or it's it's going to people are going to judge based on that right i don't know were you feeling any of that when, when that was happening no i think i think once you become a mom you just kind of let, let that go <laughs> <laughs> okay well some it people may feel it's that real life. <laughs> we're authentic right <laughs> <laughs> right but but i think the heart of heart of that stuff is the same thing because if you let some of that stuff get to you or you feel overwhelmed you're not going to be in that moment you're not going to be uh, present and so you're going to pull yourself further and further and further away which is where the mindfulness aspect comes in uh, i think when you have kids there is a, a level of chaos that you can function on that uh, is different than when you were single and you you let go of certain uh, attachments that you might've had because it's just life. Right. Um, but some of those things could be really anxiety provoking, but is, to answer your real question, which is more about that mindfulness and how to practice it is start small. You have to train your brain to really stay present. You have to train your brain to sit with all these thoughts that are happening and all these worries or things you have to do or things that are coming up or things that aren't being talked about or things that need to be talked about. Um, and you have to work on saying, okay, I have all these thoughts, but I need to stay where I'm at because I'm in the process of doing something, whether it's dinner with your family, whether it's doing the dishes, whether it's, um, going for a walk or even meditating or reading, right? Sometimes those thoughts, most of the time, those thoughts will pull you out of actually being there. And I think our phones also do that too, because we go to our phones as a distraction when it's like, ah, let me check my phone. I can't tell you how many times I read at night and I check my phone and I'm like, no one's, no one's messaging me. <laughs> like, my friends are probably not even up. And if they are, they're, they're watching TV. So I've gotten to the habit of shutting the phone off while I'm reading. So it's, it's a non-distraction. But so to answer your question is starting small. And that could just be uh, doing training in mindfulness for five minutes at a time. And so if you're on a walk, instead of um, trying to force something to happen, you can pay attention to the thoughts that you're having and then say, okay, I'm worried about this, but right now I'm out of my walk. Let me focus on something that's happening during this walk to pay attention to. And so you can do that with your senses, whether it's what you can see or what you can hear or what you can smell. You guys know senses. So um, any of those senses are really just focusing on 
what's going on inside your body as you're walking, how you're feeling, or the feel of, um, if you're on a trail, the feel of the trail to really ground yourself with earth. This is, we call it grounding, using your senses to do those things, but it's a really good trick that you can do to practice mindfulness, even if it's just for two to five minutes. Um, I do it with kids a lot in session and it's just paying attention and you can expand out from there, right? Because you're not just looking at one thing when you're going for a walk or, or coloring or reading, you're looking at a ton of stuff. And so it's really being in that moment, paying attention to it. And guess what? It's a discipline. So when you start, you're going to have all those thoughts, but for that five minutes, you say, nope, these thoughts, thoughts are valid. They're true. They're they're important but for five minutes i'm focused on this right so you don't want to just say oh god caitlin why are you thinking about that show again and how sad that show made you right you should be doing this right um you don't want to beat yourself up about it because that pulls you further away from being present right so i always i always joke around if i'm talking to you i'm in center line, uh, Marcus uh, calls it in martial arts center line, like right, right in the center of your being. This is where mindfulness lives right here. If I start thinking about dinner, I start to move away from center, right? And then if I say, oh yeah, I really want some pizza. Now I'm a little bit farther away. And then for me, being the geek that I am, if I think pizza, think Ninja Turtles, all right? So now I'm even further away. And then I'm like, obviously Raphael is like the coolest Ninja Turtle. I can't believe people think Leo is the best. Now I'm even further away. Right. And then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being dramatic about this, but this is how thoughts work, right? There's all these connecting pieces, these fast moving parts. And then if I take a look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not on center anymore. I, I'm supposed to be presenting on anxiety. Why am I not in center? Oh God, Ninja Turtles again, Steve, really? Now I'm even further away. If I start judging my thoughts, right. And so I don't want to judge my thoughts and say that they're negative or, or that's not right. Why am I doing that? Because it's going to pull me further away, but practice compassion and grace for myself. And I say, okay, obviously you want to think about Ninja Turtles, but now is not the time. So why don't we wait until the drive home after presenting, uh, come back to center, focus on anxiety and talking about anxiety, right? Now, here's the trick that might happen 25 times in the next 10 minutes that I, I'm talking, especially now that I brought it up, my, I'm thinking about Raphael, but I have to bring back. That's the discipline aspect of mindfulness that you have to practice. You have to do it. It's rigorous. You have to practice it. You have to carve out this time to do it. And the more you do that, your brain, your minds, your whole body mind becomes trained to respond. Oh, we're doing this now. So let's focus on that. It's not magical. There are days that it's going to be harder to practice. There are days it's going to come easy. Most likely, um, you know, if you're around something that's very visually or sensory involved, it's going to be easy to practice mindfulness. If it's something fun, probably going to be easy to practice mindfulness. If it's something crappy, it's going to be a, a lot harder. If it's tough, it's going to be a lot harder. So sometimes if you get to a level of practicing mindfulness, try doing it with something you don't enjoy, like a task or a chore. Um, mine is doing dishes. So I like to practice mindfulness while doing dishes. And then when I want to be mindful, if I want to uh, use that control aspect, it becomes much easier because I practice it in something that's not overly fun for me. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll put that to work next time I'm not <laughs> hiding in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have another question um from tina from the facebook live hi tina um, thank you for sharing tina uh, she says i recently went through still going through a very traumatic event i completely relate to my anxiety manifesting into anger directed at my loved ones i also physically feel it in my chest i'm worried mm. that this will keep happening as this event is something that i will be dealing with for quite a long time any suggestions on how i can get it under control will mindfulness work so again, like Caitlin said, thank you for sharing that, Tina. That's really helpful and, and very brave of you. So I want to commend you on opening up and talking about that. Um, so mindfulness can help, right? Uh, it's just different aspects of how it might uh, manifest. I think 
the trouble is, is you're going through something very traumatic. You are involved in something traumatic. So these responses are very, um, they make sense why they're happening, right? Um, because you, you're constantly being exposed to this event. There are things that you can do to manage them. I, I would say there's a lot of things and, and it's not just one thing that's going to solve the issue. I think the practice of mindfulness will be helpful. I think cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful with that too. Um, depending on the trauma event, it could also be, you know, grief um, counseling or, or some kind of professional engagement so that you can work on, have step-by-step -step plan to, to address that. Things like meditation, yoga, massage, um, all these things can, again, aren't solving things, but they relieve some of that tension, right? So with trauma, here's another YouTube video. You can check it out. Uh, Peter Levine, he does somatic trauma experiencing, somatic release, which is utilizing the body to, to process trauma. He's got a fantastic book out there. It's called, I think it's called Waking the Tiger. Um, you can check that out, but there's a really good clip that he uses in his training about animals and trauma and how we as humans generally have more trauma responses that are longer lasting because our inability to release them physically, right? We have the trauma experience. And if we complete that trauma cycle, we don't carry it around with us as much, but we don't complete that trauma cycle a lot because we, we push things down or things get stuck like your chest that you had mentioned, Tina, or, or different parts of the body. And when energy gets stuck like that in the fascia or in your tissue, it, it keeps representing itself over and over again, and it gets triggered by different things. And so um, the YouTube video from Peter Levine is about a polar bear. And they're going to tag this polar bear. They're not hunting it, but they're going to tag it so they can do some research. And unfortunately, they're in a helicopter chasing after <laughs> this, this polar bear, which is probably like, I, I guess it's probably the safest way for them to do it, but probably really fear inspiring to that polar bear. Right. Um, and so they, they trank them, they tag them. And the whole point is you see how animals in the wild actually respond to traumatic events by controlling their breath and controlling this physical release of it. And so in the video, you'll see uh, the polar bear breathes differently. There's a lot of huffing. There's a lot of, you, you could tell the polar bears working through something. And then you just see the body shake like this uncontrolled shake. And then you see the polar bear just kind of lop on off and go about its, its business. Now that's an overly simplistic way to look at, at trauma reactions, but it is a really important thing to notice because animals in the wild are generally dealing with trauma situations all the time. And most of the, you know, if they got frozen there, they often end up as prey. And so the biological hack for them is to be able to process through it. Um, so you'll see we as humans don't really process through it. So uh, doing somatic experiencing through, through yoga, uh, meditation, massage, um, things like Wim Hof, uh, thing, other exercise, other exercises that speak to you, martial arts, uh, all these things can be really helpful for that. And then, um, you know, meditating, finding peace, doing some body work and, and seeing a professional to help kind of do that emotional processing and, and take those steps towards that can be really helpful. Um, one last thing on that, we talked about pets and animals. And as I was talking about animals, the polar bear, uh, I'm not sure if, if you all were thinking about it, but domestic animals actually do have trouble with expressing trauma release. And so sometimes you'll see domestic animals have high anxiety or depression or trauma reactions because of co-regulation with human beings. So it's a double-edged sword. It can be really helpful for each other to co-regulate. If you ever adopt uh, an animal that was abused and you build that co-regulation, you can see that you can bring that animal back and help process through it. Um, but if, if you're abusing that animal, you can also offset it in, into trauma response as well. So I don't know if that answered all your questions, Tina, but I, I hope it gave you some place to start and, and some place to connect to.
I just want to kind of piggyback on her question. I'm sorry, my son and <laughs> husband okay. are talking in the background. Um, before I do that, Tina says, thank you so much. She will check uh, out that video. You. <laughs> and she appreciates it. But to kind of piggyback on that, um, so I oftentimes get very frustrated. And when I'm frustrated, I have a very bad habit of being very short with my husband when he's talking to me. Mm -hmm. And he knows that this happens, which doesn't make it okay for me to still do that. But what is there a better way that I can get my emotions across than being short? I know mindfulness will help, especially in that moment for me okay. to kind of sit there and just not respond right away. Mm -hmm. But is there... I don't know. Do you have any recommendation? Yeah. Um, so this is where that I had mentioned it on some of the things that you could could work on to to help assist with anxiety or frustration or anger is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is um, you know a technique some therapists use in sessions to really look at that cognition, your thought. Um, the emotion and the outcome, the behavior of that situation. I think this is really important. You can do low, low level stuff on your, uh, yourself. You can do that research. You can work through it on your own, but sometimes having a professional kind of work with you could, could really bring that out. Um, for your question, I think it really is more about, again, mindfulness, huge buzzword, but doesn't make it untrue, but also after the fact, sitting and saying, okay, I know where this is coming from because I use my awesome mindfulness abilities to figure that out. This was what my thought was. So this was the situation. This is what my thought was. This was my emotion. And then this, these were the options. And I chose to go with this, right? Why do I go with that? Why do I snap? What is it about that? That, that drives me towards that. And have I always done that? Or is this a new thing? Because if you've done that a lot, is about deprogramming that reaction, right? Because that builds up and becomes habit and, and it happens on a subconscious level sometimes, right? So you might say, okay, I'm stressed out. I know uh, here comes my husband again, complaining about uh, rice being stuck on the dish and how hard it is. And I'm dealing with all this stress. So my thought is like, how dare you? And my emotion is uh, frustration. And then my outcome could be like, snap at him, or I can choose to say, Hey, I need a minute. I've, I feel a, a little overwhelmed, right? If you go with that snapping, that becomes your reaction. So the more that happens, the more that neural pathway in your brain happens. Oh, I'm frustrated. Someone says something to me. That's a trigger. I'm going to respond to it this way. Right? So using that mindfulness, and it doesn't have to be in that moment. It can be after to start saying, okay, I know this is what happened. I'm going to pay attention to that because I need to pay attention because I know this is something that happens and I'm going to try to introduce a new outcome or I'm going to try to, you know, catch my thought. And before I let that emotion take over, I'm going to try to regulate that emotion or I'm going to, you know, condition a new response based on practicing, you know, okay, maybe it won't always work, but instead of snapping, I'm going to say, I need a second. I'm overwhelmed. Now that seems overly simplistic, but if you're able to start introducing some of these, even if you make that mistake uh, occasionally, you start disrupting that subconscious response and you can start actually making a change in it. And it may take a little while, um, but having that communication and, and communicating with your husband after the fact to kind of process through so that you can say, hey, this was a trigger for me. This is what I was going through. And he can say, okay. Uh, I'm not going to walk on eggshells, but I'm going to try to keep that in my mind that this could be a trigger to something deeper and we'll have a conversation about it. Thank you. Yes. Oftentimes we do have a conversation after the fact, but it's, Good. it's my reaction that that sparks that. And that's what I need to work on. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah, no problem. It's, it, you know, it's the same way as repatterning any kind of thing uh, about, wanting to eat healthier or go to the gym or exercise or whatever it is. It's about awareness, that mindfulness, and then really saying, okay, this is not generative to me. It's limiting. How do I make a, a generative decision in that moment and trying it out?
Cool. So why don't we do like a, a last call? If anyone watching or anyone anywhere has any questions, uh, feel free to ask them. If not, that's completely fine. If anyone's watching this on the replay, uh, feel free to, to leave questions and we'll answer them to the best of our ability. Or you can follow us on social media or email us using our website, theprometheanproject.org to get in contact with us and we'll follow up on that. So. All right, very cool. So thank you guys for tuning in for Stigma is Curable. Are you anxious at the right time? Demystifying anxiety. We have the craziest names for our events because I really enjoy <laughs> having a journey and treating it almost like the Hobbit and, and going on a travel with this stuff. So I appreciate you tuning in, being open, asking questions and uh, participating. So we'll see you next month. and. We'll have more in probably a couple of days to a week of, of what that event's going to be.